All right. I'll invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 20 once again. We are actually going to be finding our way to numerous Old Testament passages. I told you as we uh, began this study last week, we're going to spend three weeks talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Specifically, last week in our time together, we studied Revelation chapter uh, 20, verses 1 through 6, really. And within those short verses uh, contained really 1,000 years of future history that we call the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ. We studied that God's people will, in fact, rule and reign with Christ in His kingdom. And we explored the possible meanings of this as it related to the things that we do in this life. And that was our general application last week that... The things in this life do matter. And uh, we connected that to some possibilities as it related to this time that we would call oftentimes the kingdom age or the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But that's really only the tip of the iceberg. We went and we traced Daniel last week, right? Remember, we, we went through some of uh, Daniel um, uh, 7 and 8 and 9 again, and we talked about the various promises as it related to Israel and what we saw in those and how the Bible said that the fourth beast would be utterly destroyed, but that the other three beasts would be allowed to, to uh, live, though their dominion was taken away for a time. And we did all of that to try to place into our minds a relative context as it related to the Millennial Kingdom and what God was attempting to teach us about the Millennial Kingdom. Because in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we have very little about it. That doesn't mean the Bible says very little about it. Well, this week I want to give you the prophetic context. And I want to give you two particular characteristics of this Kingdom age that we see all throughout the Old Testament. And I'm just going to give you a few passages of Scripture this morning that we're going to walk through and talk through a little bit. Bit. But literally, if, if, if you read the Old Testament with the kingdom of God in mind, if you read the New Testament with the kingdom of God in mind, you find that it is everywhere, that this promise of, of the Lord's dominion and power and this time where He is ruling and reigning over the world in justice and uh, in, in, where there's peace and prosperity, this is, this is found all throughout the Old Testament in particular. It undergirds every single promise that God gives to the nation of Israel. And so we're going to look at that this week. And then next week we're going to look at one more characteristic of the kingdom, and that would be the economy of the kingdom. In other words, how things are going to function specifically as it relates to worship within the kingdom age. And we'll talk about Ezekiel 40 to 48 as we try to understand that. Then following that, we will continue in Revelation. We'll talk about the end of the millennium, what happens, why it happens, and then we're going to talk about um, the, the final piece of the prophetic puzzle before things just become eternity and joy and, and, and bliss and such. And that final piece of the puzzle will be, what do we do with Gog and Magog, which we have not talked about yet, but we will do so in a few weeks. So we begin as we talk about the character of the kingdom with the first point that I want to highlight for you, which is that God will directly be ruling over Israel. God directly ruling over Israel. The kingdom promises, as we look throughout the Old Testament, were made to Israel, where God promised to rule over them directly. We've talked about this throughout, that God still has a plan for Israel. Going all the way back to our earliest messages on this topic, we highlighted that God still has a plan for Israel. We defended quite thoroughly why we believe God still has a plan for national Israel why it is that the, th this is important to us and we believe it's important to biblical teaching and prophecy. I don't want this point to become tedious or overstated, but we do need to understand that these promises are made to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we are living in a time of the church where this is falling out of favor again uh, due to the, the tremendous increase in uh, the Reformed theology going all the way back to um, really the, the Calvin and, and Luther applications of these concepts, uh, both of whom were, were deep anti-Semites in the tradition of the Catholic Church. And so because of that, there was a tremendous amount of of um, 
uh, hostility toward the Jews at that time that worked itself out as we got into the 17 and 1800s and is finding its way back as people are responding to the free grace um, social gospel movement by trying to get back to the, the tenets of the Reformation, not just taking the good of the Reformation, but also the ill. And so what we find is that God throughout the Old Testament gave promises to the nation, to the people, to the physical lineage and descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All throughout these prophecies, we, we see God not only promising them to Israel, which is the covenant name for this nation, but to Jacob, to the, 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 to the, the nation or the people of Jacob, the birth name of Israel, the physical lineage of Israel. We see promises of restoration, not only for the descendants of the southern kingdoms of Judah, but we see promises of restoration even for the northern uh, tribes of Israel, those that had been completely dispersed by the Assyrian Empire. We studied all of this at the beginning of our series in Revelation, we also studied it at the beginning of our Jeremiah series. For those of you that come on Sunday nights, if you recall, we saw God made promises in Jeremiah 2 and 3 explicitly to the northern tribes of Israel. Though they had been in captivity for over 100 years at that point, and though they had been completely scattered among the Assyrian Empire, that God would restore them, that He would bring the remnant back together. And we see these promises particularly in the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And it is Ezekiel that I want to highlight first this morning as we study this. Now, I have preached through Ezekiel before, but of the people that are here, um, maybe three or four of you were present for that series. Uh, not many of you were present, uh, maybe even just a couple of you were, were present for, I know Matt and Holly were. I don't know that anyone else who was here for that because it was an evening series. Um, but uh, not many of you were present for that series. I do encourage you to go back and listen to it if you would ever like to know more about the nature of Ezekiel. But we'll be referencing Ezekiel quite a bit this week, next week, and into uh, the weeks that are following as we talk about the Millennial Temple, Gog and Magog, and such. But let's Let's look at a couple of passages in Ezekiel as it relates to God's promises of a kingdom for the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 10 through 15, the Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is coming among the sheep that are scattered. So will I uh, seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. So we read this promise about a good shepherd. We're actually going to talk tonight and over the next couple of weeks in Jeremiah about this very topic. As Jeremiah, God's going to promise the same thing, a good shepherd, through Jeremiah. It's really neat to see how these series are, are merging at this point. The Lord does neat things like that. And so as we are seeing here, God is promising. He says, the shepherds that you have had have scattered you. They are bad shepherds, but I'm going to be a good shepherd. I'm going to give you a good shepherd. I am going to feed my flock. I am going to shepherd my sheep. So we see in these verses God promised to regather the nation, to bring them back together from the scattering that they have had, to feed them, to care for them, and to bless them. And you'll see why this matters so much in just a moment when we get to Ezekiel 37. But before we get to Ezekiel 37, I want to skip ahead a few verses right here in Ezekiel 34 and read verses 23 through 31. And this is going to teach about how during this time when God regathers this nation, when there is this one shepherd over them, there will be peace. 
There will be peace, uh, not just among men, but among the animals. And then we'll, we'll tuck that part away because we're going to come back to it in just a little bit. So as we continue in verse 23, the Bible says this, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase, and they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke, and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land. Neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord, am their God. Excuse me, the Lord their God am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. Notice all of the promises of God in this time that Israel will be safe in their land, that they, can, uh, that they can roam freely, that they can sleep out at night, that not only will no man harm, but no animal would harm them in his holy mountain, that, that there will be no hunger in the land, that there will be no poverty in the land. So we see this promise that in the day that the, that the Lord is their shepherd, in the day that there is a regathering, that there will also be a, a tremendous amount of advantage, physical advantage within the land. And we'll come back to this in just a few moments. All of this is heightened by God's further revelation through Ezekiel if we skip ahead to Ezekiel 37. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel, perhaps you are familiar, begins with a vision of dry bones. I don't know if you're familiar with this particular vision. It's a somewhat popular passage, at least within the scope of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees a valley of bones, and they're human bones, and they're dry bones, and it's just a bunch of skeletons lying in this valley. And as God is speaking to Ezekiel, he, Ezekiel is watching, and he sees these bones come alive. And then he sees upon these bones flesh be put back on these bones. So we're basically going in a reverse process of death. Right? So typical process is the body dies, then the body decays, and then the bones are dry. In this process, we go from dry bones to life, uh, to, to flesh, and then to the breath of life being put in them. Ezekiel prophesied unto the Spirit, and the Spirit caused the bodies to come alive. And God said to Ezekiel, this, as in what he just saw, this is the whole house of Israel signifying that God is going to restore the nation, that God is going to make that which was dead be alive again. And after this, within Ezekiel 37, we see another prophetic symbol. And I'm going to spend a, a little bit more time on this one and read this one together. In Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 16, the Bible says this, Moreover, thou son of man, Ezekiel was regularly called uh, son of man as a title that was given to him within the book, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah. And for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph and the stick of Ephraim and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. 
land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. So we see a very interesting circumstance here certainly something that we have never seen play out in the history of history, right? We don't have this in the history books yet because this is yet to happen. And the way we see it play out is that Ezekiel takes two sticks and on one stick he writes for Judah and for those that pertain to him in Israel. And then on the other stick for Joseph and those that pertain to him of Ephraim. And so we have one stick that represents the southern tribe of Judah which was made up of, of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin or the southern kingdom of Judah made up of Judah. Judah and Benjamin, the tribes, and then the northern kingdom of Israel, which was made up of the other ten tribes. And, and Ezekiel takes those two, which are separate sticks, which at that time in history, both had been taken into captivity, and he puts them together into one stick, showing without question that there would be a reunification of the nation, that God would regather and would reunify the nation. And then he goes on to make all of these many promises that he would give them one king, that he would make them for them one shepherd, that, that they would um, be back in their land and that there would be prosperity in their land and that the, the heathen would know that God has sanctified the nation of Israel and that they would dwell in their land in peace. And he promises to give them an everlasting covenant binding them forevermore, that God would tabernacle, dwell with them, His presence being among them. And let me mention one more thing as we move on. Throughout the prophecies of the kingdom, Old Testament and New Testament, we find that the Gentiles are a part of this kingdom as well. We find all throughout Old Testament the promises that the Gentiles would seek unto that kingdom. We read about this uh, with Zechariah and with Simeon throughout the Christmas holiday, right? That uh, as we saw the prophecies of Jesus Christ fulfilled in this child who was born, that the recognition of these prophecies was that he was going to be the one unto whom the Gentiles would seek. He would be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Nothing that we read operates to the exclusion of the Gentiles, but we see that God's promises, as it relates to his kingdom, as it relates to him ruling and reigning, in the time that is to come, as it relates to a time when He will bring about peace on earth, where He will bring about um, the, the, the economy which we are studying within this 1,000 years, that this is a time where God is specifically fulfilling His promises to the nation of Israel. Next point. First, we saw that God directly rules over the nation of Israel within this time. And we need to understand that about the character of this kingdom. The kingdom is, it exists. This 1,000 years exists as a part of God fulfilling all the promises that He needs to fulfill in order for Him to establish His, his kingdom. His right to rule, His dominance over Satan's attempt at a false kingdom. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks. And if you remember that message where we talked about the two kingdoms, the competing kingdoms between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, and how Satan is competing for the right to rule. He is competing for the right to have dominion. It is why he caused man to fall to sin. It is why Satan at every turn is seeking to cause God's program to fail. It is why the Jews are under the gun all the time. It is why anti-Semitism exists in an almost irrational fashion. Because Satan is, is working in the background to see God's program fail. And if God, if Satan can cause Israel to be extinguished or God to fail at ruling and reigning over them in the kingdom as he has promised, then God has failed and God is not God. 
And so this is all going back to that kingdom conflict. For those of you that remember that message, for those of you that don't, uh, you can listen to them. I think it was number six and seven of our introduction in Revelation. Um, they're labeled there. The, uh, the introduction to the kingdom parts one and two. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. We will review them, not next week, but the week after. So we find all of this promise about God and, and directly ruling over Israel. And that is a huge portion of the distinction of this kingdom. But the other element of this kingdom, as it relates to the character of the kingdom, is that this kingdom is defined by absolute justice, peace, and prosperity. In Revelation 20, we read that Satan would be removed from the world for that thousand years. He would be bound in the bottomless pit in chain for a thousand years. So what we find is that within this time, there is no great accuser. There is no tempter. The enemy of God's people, the enemy of God has been bound and he cannot influence in the world the way he has been able to since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We have that, that entire context of evil and temptation entirely removed from the picture. But not everything bad in this world can be laid at the feet of Satan, can it? Indeed, every time we see a person die, that's not Satan, that's the curse. Every time a flower withers, that's not Satan, that's the curse. The evil that is done from man to man, Satan certainly encourages that. We see the philosophies of Satan pervade this world. One of the, the, the most popular ones right now is the will to power. The geopolitics as we see it today, and as it's always been, but as it's particularly coming to the forefront within the last few years, is the idea that might makes right, that power is all that matters, that there is no right or wrong, it's only winners and losers. And this idea is a satanic idea to the core. And so we've always seen Satan function in, in, in the world, and that is removed. But what he's doing is he's tapping into the heart of man, right? He's tapping into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He did it with, with Eve in the garden. He's tapping into the sin nature, and that sin nature still exists. And so what we find as we study the prophecies of the kingdom is that not only will Satan be bound, but that there will be a new level of prosperity, peace, and joy as Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron and keeping at bay the sin nature of man that exists, not in those who have experienced the first resurrection. Remember, we talked last week about the first resurrection, and those that will experience the first resurrection, they are in immortal bodies at this point, right? Everybody who is of this age, who has died uh, in Christ, they have been resurrected. They are in immortal, resurrected bodies, and they are ruling and reigning with Christ in this time. But there will be those who go into the millennial kingdom as mortals, as as mortal human beings in their, their bodies, their, their earthly human mortal bodies, and those who are, are in the kingdom at that time in those bodies, they will still have a sin nature. It will not be under the influence of Satan, under his deceptions, under his temptations, but it will still be there. Now, we read a little bit already about this prosperity, as I told you, in Ezekiel 34. We read about there being peace. We read about there being no... no um, uh, uh, um, Violence between man and man or between man and animal. How people could sleep in the woods and, and, and that would be fine and that there was no danger to that because no animal would dare um, harm anyone in the Lord's kingdom. But consider what else we read in prophecy in relation to this time. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9, the Bible says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. If you want to learn more about the branch... Come back tonight for Jeremiah. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make of him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. 
and righteousness shall be in the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the, cover the sea. So we see this promise of this rod and, uh, that would come out of, the, the, out of Jesse, the stem of Jesse, the branch that would grow from him. And this uh, will sound very familiar, particularly to those of you uh, who are studying Jeremiah with us in the evening. And what we see here is the character of Messiah's ministry, that he will rule and reign in righteousness, righteous judgment over all things, righteous judgment over the poor, righteous judgment over injustice. There will be no destruction in Jesus' kingdom. There will be no war in Jesus' kingdom. There will be no evil in Jesus' kingdom. We find here that the animals will live in fear of the king so that they would not dare kill. There will be such a knowledge of the Lord the whole earth will be so full of the knowledge of the Lord that nothing would dare harm. And so the child can play, an asp is a type of poisonous snake. Uh, so a child can play with snakes and the lion can lie down with the lamb, which is that, that, that prototypical picture that we, that we think of when we think of the millennial kingdom, right? The lion lying down with the lamb. And the animals will feed one with another and they will, will not eat each other because they fear the Lord. And because they fear the Lord, they would not dare kill. And so this is the, the, the very essence of curbing the curse. The very essence of curbing the elements of man and of beast that would naturally predispose them unto harm. Man will still have a sin nature among the mortal, but they would not dare act on it. Because the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Because the whole earth will fear the Lord because he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. Throughout our study of the end times, we have regularly referenced the prophecies of Joel. Remember in Joel 2, we saw what strongly relates to the, sixth, the prophecies and events concerning the sixth seal, which are extremely important as a marker in the end times for the nation of Israel. In Joel 3, we read about the signs that accompanied the Lord's coming and the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Now we finish our Joel story with Joel teaching again about the time after the Lord's return, the time after Revelation 19, and the description of the events of the kingdom. So I'm going to start back a little bit here in Joel 3, speaking of the Lord's return, and then into the kingdom. The Bible says this in verses 15 through 18. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This is at the Lord's return. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people, and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no stranger pass through her any more. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. We'll talk about this more next week when we talk about the Millennial Temple. But what we see here is that violence is removed, and what is put in its place is prosperity. Peace, plenty, holiness. There will be a prosperity on the earth. That ground that was not fertile will be made fertile. The Bible speaks of the Dead Sea becoming alive with life. As a matter of fact, the Dead Sea is in many ways a complete type of Israel as it relates to the Old Testament uh, um, choices into Israel's dry bones phase and then into their new life. This is the characteristic of the time following the Lord's return. The hills will flow with milk. The mountains will drop down with new wine. The rivers shall flow with waters. There will be tremendous prosperity. No more poverty. No more sorrow. No more 
war, no more evil, no more temptation unto it, that will be the 1,000 years of Jesus' reign. We also read about this in Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. The Bible says, It shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, that word meaning husband, and shalt call me more, no more Baali, which is my Lord or my God. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and I will make them lie down safely. Once again, God says, I will break the bow of battle, of the sword, of, of war. There will be no more war. So we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth a law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The swords of the world will no longer be needed. They will be beaten into plowshares. The instrument of war will be turned into an instrument of reaping of the harvest because there will be so much plenty. They will need the instruments in order to reap the harvest to its fullness because there will be no more poverty. There will be no more hunger. There will be no need for instruments of war because no one would dare fight. No one would dare do such a thing in God's kingdom. The same promise is made in Micah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Jesus will judge, he will rebuke the nations, there will be no more war. Now, our final exploration of this concept today helps us get an idea of what it, mean, what it means that God might rule with a rod of iron, as the Bible tells us, might rule and reign in righteousness. What might that look like? We see that there will be no war. We see that there will be no poverty. We see that, that the animals would not dare kill. It will be a time of peace. It will be a time of prosperity. It will be a time of plenty. It will be a time of fruitfulness. But man still has a sin nature. In this time, not the resurrected, but those who entered alive into the millennium still have a sin nature. It is not under the temptations and deceits of Satan, thank God, but it is still there. Will everyone live in sinless perfection? They will not. It's just that justice will be meted out immediately. And we see perhaps a glimmer of what this means in Zechariah chapter 14. The chapter begins with a teaching on the day of the Lord, which is the day of Jesus' return. The battle, which we typically call the Battle of Armageddon. Of Jesus' feet standing on the Mount of Olives and cleaving in two, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Then the text continues with the Millennial Kingdom. And it says this in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 8. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. Remember the living waters that we talked about before. That, that will come out. We see it here. We'll see it again in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Living waters shall go out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. 
In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one, and all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and the inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress. So we're talking about the whole, the whole land being flattened and then there being a portion raised up for this temple. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague. Notice this. This shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. Not pleasant. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold everyone on the hand of his neighbor, and on, the, on his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. So we're talking about the transition time. The land will be flattened. There will be a portion that is elevated in order that Jerusalem and the new temple can stand on it. We'll see next week the new temple is bigger the temple that Ezekiel describes in 40 to 48 is literally bigger than the entire t mountain that exists there now. It cannot be a mountain that exists as the topography of the land exists now. So we see that elevation. We see everything else flattened. And then we see the judgment of God in this time against the evil and against those who have gone against him. We see this plague that consumes them. And then the fighting that Israel will, will fight for themselves and for Jerusalem in this time. And so shall be, verse 15, the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of of the ass and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as these plagues. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. So then once, once these kingdoms come against Jerusalem, this is Armageddon, right? Jesus comes and he fight against, fights against them. There's this plague. They all die. Uh, the, the topography has changed. There's this new temple that's built. Jesus is ruling and reigning from that temple. We'll talk more about that next week. And then there are a remnant of those nations that are still alive, as Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8 told us, that the fourth beast would be destroyed, but the other three beasts have the dominion taken away. But for a time they are allowed to live. And so we have the people, maybe the women, the children, the young men, those that did not go off to war, and they are still living in their nations. Their dominion is taken away, but they're allowed to live. But they're allowed to live only under certain circumstances. So the Bible says, I, I know I cut off right halfway through 16, um, and it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there is a new economy whereby all of the people of the earth have to come up every year and worship Jesus. Now, we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. We talked about that last week. It's quite possible that those who are, have partaken in the first resurrection will be extensions of the Lord's authority in any given land so that uh, uh, we will be there to mete out immediate justice upon those who would do wrong within the land. But notice that not everyone will just decide they want to do this. They want to go up every year. So we read in verse 17, And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not up that have no rain, and, and come not, excuse me, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, meaning they will all be sanctified. They won't have to be cleansed because everything will be perpetually cleansed. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So we read about this circumstance. Perhaps this is what takes place within the 75 days between the end of the 70th week and the establishment of the kingdom as we talked about in Daniel chapter 12 last week. 
The nations still exist, but they are called every year to come up before the Lord and to give these sacrifices. And if they fail to do it, then their land will be immediately struck with famine and drought. They will immediately be judged by the Lord. And if they fail even at that to come up, then they will be plagued in reminiscence of the plagues of Egypt. So we see that though man is existing and man fears the Lord, yet there still will be a heart of rebellion based upon man's natural sin nature. But God will judge it immediately and divinely and it will be dealt with swiftly. And this is the idea here. This is the economy, uh, the, the characteristic as we see it within the kingdom. Perhaps a small insight into the kind of judgment that Jesus will mete out when we read those words that he will rule and reign with a rod of iron upon the earth. And that leads us to our application this morning. It's an application which I'm actually going to highlight in a greater way in a couple of weeks. But for this morning, let's take this point and begin to meditate on it together. Peace, justice, complete prosperity will come to the world, but not by any earthly government, any earthly nation, any earthly system, or any mortal man. But within the limits of human ability, let us strive for these things still. The legacy of mankind as it relates to the attempt of man to bring about peace on earth is one that spans all of history. And it's not a bad thing in and of itself that people want peace on the earth. Of course it's not a bad thing. I hope we at Legacy Baptist Church would not be numbered among those who hear of war and say, well, good, it's just going to happen until Jesus returns and and be the cheerleaders of war. I hope we at Legacy Baptist Church would not be numbered among those who are so focused upon death and evil as signs of prophetic fulfillment that we fail to see them as tragedy that we would desire to not see happen. We as Christians walk a fine line in that we know that war, that poverty, that evil simply will not be eliminated this side of the kingdom of Christ. While simultaneously not stealing our hearts as it relates to war and poverty, that you can walk by the poor man shrug your shoulders and say, well, Jesus did say the poor will always be with us, so there it is. Would to God that we would not hear of war in the world, shrug our shoulders and say, well, the Bible says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Would to God that we would not be those that hearing about true injustice, and I'm not talking about the progressive definition of justice, mind you, which is simply a shadow term for inequality of outcomes in the world, but we're talking about true justice, as in enforced truth and righteousness. Let us not hear about injustice and simply say, well, only Jesus can establish justice. All of these things are, in their purest sense, true. Poverty, war, injustice, death, evil. These will and indeed must exist until Jesus purifies this world. But that doesn't mean our lives our families, our communities, our nation needs to be filled with them today. That doesn't mean we cannot or should not go out of our way to seek for peace, to help those in poverty, to desire that justice be done. The realities of the kingdom that is to come help keep us rightly related to the big picture. That when bad things happen, when, when we, we recognize that poverty exists and it's a sad thing, when we see people living in truly impoverished conditions, when we recognize that wars will, will continue and that they'll get worse, and we think about the devastation of the wars of the past century, perhaps the bloodiest century that the world has known, perhaps. When we think about all of the injustice that goes on in this world, The realities of the kingdom help keep us grounded, help give us a perspective as it relates to these things, a context within which to say, these are the problems and we know that these exist and we know that they're going to exist until Jesus solves them and thus a hope in what Jesus is going to do. But we ought to also use the realities of the kingdom as a context within which to act today. And what I mean by this is that humans outside of God believe that an imperfect order can never be enough. 
And so there must be radical changes at the expense even of life and liberty which God has granted us in order to achieve the ideals of perfection. That's what the attempt at communism was in the USSR and, of course, in all the other places where it found its way. It was an attempt to say, no, an imperfect order is not enough. We must fight, we must kill, we must achieve a perfect order, something which simply is not in the realm of human possibility within our sin nature. So all men agree that poverty is a terrible thing. The Christian thus gives of what he has in obedience to the Lord. And he ministers to the needs of the poor within the scope of God's design and the commands of God's word. He recognizes that the poor will always be with us. He understands the nature of of human nature and how various elements of human nature uh, lead certain people into poverty and how in other cases it's not. In other cases it's a sin, curse, sin, sick world. We support the policies that can alleviate the strain on the poor. We strive to help those in need of a helping hand. But we recognize that as long as sinful man exists, there will be poverty. Be it through illness, be it through disease, be it through war, be it through famine, be it through laziness, be it through selfishness, be it through lust, be it through covetousness, or anything else, poverty is going to exist. And this tempers our perspective from becoming radical and pursuing unjust policies in an attempt to solve the problem that exists because of the presence of sin and the curse and will be guaranteed to remain until Christ. And so... The, the, the person says, well, you just don't care about the poor because you don't want to fill in the blank. And the Christian says, no, indeed, I care about the poor greatly. But this is an attempt to do what God says cannot be done this side of the kingdom. And we draw a line there. And that's okay. That is where those lines get drawn. To this end, we don't support things such as redistributionism which is a nice word for forcibly stealing from successful people to give to unsuccessful people. This is stealing. It's evil. It's sinful. To this end, we don't support eugenics, which is a nice word for killing people that don't fit into a certain standard in order to stop them, say the poor, from reproducing. If you've ever looked into the history of Planned Parenthood and its founder, Margaret Sanger, you will find that her primary motive in starting Planned Parenthood was to kill babies of poor, poor black women to solve the perpetual poor people in America problem. It was an attempt to stop the poor from reproducing because the mindset was poor are going to create more poor, so if the poor stop reproducing, then there will be no more poor because she didn't believe what the Bible says. And these people are going to extremes to solve a problem that the Bible says only Jesus can solve. The same could be said for injustice. We all want justice, that the truth comes out, and that those who do wrong pay for it. To this end, the believer should welcome actions and policies that are just, truly just, truth, righteousness, just. But as long as the sin nature exists, leading to faulty memories, ulterior motives, leading to people lying about what they've seen or heard, leading to any number of corruptions in the levels and the halls of justice. Injustice will always exist until Jesus eliminates it in his kingdom, until one who knows all things, one who is omniscient and omnipresent, is able to rule and reign in perfect justice. Thus we reject the absolute evil of movements that would seek to cause people to be more credible based upon their skin color or their gender or their choices, or their particular level in the hierarchy of intersectionality, giving them some heightened level of credibility simply because they've been a victim in some way, shape, or form. This is not justice. This is a perverted attempt to establish a justice apart from the acknowledgement of sin, and that does not work. It cannot work because man is sinful, because the devil is real, and he is at work influencing, attempting, Uh, Tempting others, accusing others. The curse is real. The sin nature is real. And not until Jesus comes and undoes these things will we truly see the utopia that many people, that mankind has always longed for. And these don't have to rest in contradiction. What we are seeing in our society today is an attempt to create the kingdom, which, which is what we all want, without Jesus. And it cannot happen. And people say, well, because you're saying it cannot happen, that means you don't want it to happen. That's not true. That's not true. 
We as Christians aren't saying, I don't want good things to happen just because we're acknowledging that the sin nature exists. Don't let people guilt you into thinking that if you don't support a certain policy or a certain direction or a certain utopian vision or the way in which that vision is brought about, that that means you don't care because that's not true. It's not true. It simply means that we are, we are interpreting our understanding of poverty, our understanding of justice, our understanding of war and of evil through the lens of the book that God says is true, through the lens of truth. And when we interpret it through the lens of truth, it changes our perspective on things. It's a different perspective. It's a different worldview. And this is why the revelation of Jesus Christ is so important. Because it teaches us who Christ is, what He's going to do, and it orients us to this life today, which is what matters. What will come will come. We need to get on the right side of Christ. We'll talk about that as we get closer to the end of the book. But orienting us today, the whole theme of the book of Revelation, mankind will make a final push to establish a utopian society within his own capacities. And, every, and as every attempt of utopia within the history of mankind is shown, this, is not the fir- this will not be the first time utopia has been attempted. It's been attempted any number of times by any number of historical figures. And as we see this, every single attempt at utopia that mankind has tried to bring into this world has brought instead bloodshed and injustice and evil. The end justifies the means in an attempt to establish a new world order. And the end of which Jesus speaks of is that he is going to come back to do the job that no other man and no other system, simply put, cannot do. They, they just cannot do them. And so for today, we have tremendous loyalties to seeking to help the impoverished. As a matter of fact, it's a part of what we read about this morning about true religion, was it not? To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. And so for today, we elevate justice True justice, as in truth and righteousness. For today, we seek peace. We don't delight or rejoice in war. But we don't rest our hope in the things of this life. That somehow a certain policy or certain direction is going to make things perfect. We instead focus our hope on the Lord, who is our only hope. And know that there's coming a day when Jesus will establish the kingdom of peace and justice and prosperity and that those who are in Christ, thank God, will be a part of it. And so as we go from here today, I encourage you to place your hearts and your minds on this point, on this reality, that there's coming a day when Jesus will make it all right. That until then we strive. We do our best. We do our part. We don't rejoice in that which is a problem in this world simply because the problems are indicative of fulfillment of God's word. And yet we always interpret all of the things that we would do in this world, all of the things that we would see have happen, all of the directions that we would go through the lens of the fact that God has a system in place, that God has created a system, and at the end of that system is his son ruling and reigning in righteousness and making those things right, which man in his tremendous limitations because of a sin nature simply cannot do. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.